Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm Stuart Garlick and uh, I'm very happy to welcome everyone here again. Uh, thank you to all my subscribers, all our subscribers on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your audio. Um, this podcast, as with all the others, is made possible by my friends and subscribers on Patreon. So thank you very much. Uh, if you'd like to receive more um, in-depth coverage of electric motorsport in all its forms, then head over to patreon.com forward slash motion um, but uh, to discuss the race in the Diria E Prix, which I wrote about on the main site, motione.org, um, I've got Aurora Del Ali, uh, Italian motorsport journalist, and um, also, Aurora, you're now working for um, a GT team operating the Bentley, and I'm very envious of that. So would you like to tell us something about your new job and how it's going? Um, as always, thank you so much, Stuart, for, for having me. It's always a pleasure to return to this podcast. Um, yeah, at the moment, actually, I would say I'm on the other side of the barricade. After a couple of years uh, working as a motorsport journalist, um, having a chance to see the perspective from uh, the, the PR department side and the press officer duties is a, is a very, very interesting uh, way of seeing things, you know. Um, yeah, I'm currently working with Team Lazarus. Uh, we are competing in the GT Open Championship. And as far as we know, we're like one of two teams uh, still operating Bentleys uh, on an international series. So that's also like a very interesting challenge for us on the PR and communication side, because we have so many eyes on us, even if the GT Open Championship is not, you know, a worldwide renowned um, competition. So yeah, the challenges are many also because of course, uh, the, the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, which is still uh, hitting Europe pretty hard, um, certainly poses a number of, uh, you know, questions and uh, issues uh, in uh, operating a ch an international championship. But yeah, work has been honestly amazing for the past couple of months. I've been with the team since November 2020, and we're really looking forward to the start of the season. Well, that's that's fantastic, and uh, I'm I'm really happy that you're happy, and I'm really happy that uh, there are some teams still operating that uh, monster Bentley Continental because w what a car to look at! And by the way, I I saw the Instagram picture that you posted of the uh, Lazarus team's livery, and um, it looks pretty epic. Anyway, if you if you haven't um, if you haven't seen uh, Team Lazarus and uh, the way that their car looks, um, go and check them out. And uh, also, how can people watch the GT Open series? Yeah, actually, it's very easy to watch like uh, for the international public because it is uh, streamed for free on YouTube, uh, at least for as far as the races go. I think that maybe we have coverage on qualifying as well on YouTube. And then some selected European countries also have like uh, television broadcast coverage, mainly in Spain, in Italy uh, and in France, as far as I know, because this is like um, GT, the GT Open is operated by GT Sport, which is uh, a Spanish promoter. Uh, so, yes, it's free. Uh, it's on air for free um, on YouTube for the international audience. And I seriously suggest watching watching the races also because like we uh, are mainly aimed at, as a championship to the 
pro-am uh, driver categories, but we have a number of uh, professional drivers involved. And also like our lineup will be revealed very shortly. And we're featuring like a two, uh, two lineups with both pro drivers. So it will be very interesting to see. And we're certainly aiming high for this year's championship after a very strong performance in 2020. To, to be honest, the pro the pro am category makes it more fun. Um, I remember the BPR Global Endurance GT Championship was fun specifically because you had to have an amateur driver in the in in the second uh, second slot. And same thing with the current British GT Championship. So definitely something that I I enjoy, and um, I will keep a lookout for that. Thank you for letting us know. Um, also, um, because you've got that experience in sports car racing and because you write regularly articles about it um, in the Italian language um, as well as uh, up on social media in English, um, uh, I'd like to ask you later on about Alex Lynn and Jake Dennis, who are both Formula E drivers now, but are also both very experienced sports car drivers. So I'd love to get your experience on that later as well. Yeah, definitely. I'd be happy to. Super. All right, so uh, let's kick off then with the review of the Diria e Prix. And um, uh, obviously, you know, everyone um, likes to, where possible, keep politics out of sport, but it's not always possible. And um, yesterday there was, uh, it's been confirmed by several news outlets, including the New York Times, a planned missile attack by Houthi rebels uh, on uh, Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, next to which Diria is situated, where the EPRI was taking place. Uh, and um, I'm just briefly quoting from the New York Times to make sure I don't get uh, any uh, detail wrong. Uh, it says at the top of the article, Saudi Arabia said Saturday it interrupted, in, intercepted a missile attack over its capital and bomb-laden drones targeting a southern province. The latest in a series of airborne assaults, it is blamed on Yemen's Houthi, rebel Houthis. Um, now, without getting too deeply into a war that I know very little about, um, this sounds dicey and people at the Formula E circuit said that they saw and heard nothing and that nothing happened and I believe that. Um, but um, this is glo this is geopolitics getting very close to sport all of a sudden and um, this is obviously going to raise questions in the minds of those who were already sceptical about motorsport going to Saudi Arabia. Um, I guess um, before we sort of look at the broader themes, um, how much did this planned missile at attack that was thankfully foiled by the Saudi authorities worry you as as a fan, as a spectator? Yeah, to be honest, um, as you said yourself, I don't know much about the internal conflicts in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I know a bit more about the, the, the geopolitics of the area because um, Italy historically, like in the past uh, decade or so, has tried to entertain some sort of, you know, commercial and trade relations uh, with the country, which, of course, as you can imagine, have been uh, a topic of controversy in Italian politics as well. Um, honestly, I have to say that um, my perspective, not only as a motorsport fan and, uh, you know, somebody working in the in this business, but also, as you can imagine, as a woman on uh, on Saudi Arabia, it is a pretty is a pretty I wouldn't say 
you know, particularly controversial one, but I certainly have uh, not a not such a favorable eye um, in motorsports going to to Saudi Arabia. I personally never covered um, the Formula E races there. Like I generally didn't feel safe enough as a as a young woman to to try and get the visa and try and uh, join the paddock in uh, in Riyadh. Um, I think it certainly raises questions. I wouldn't say necessarily in, term, in terms of security and safety for the paddock and the fans, because uh, as far as I've heard, and as we as we all know, like the information coming from countries uh, such as Saudi Arabia is not necessarily open, uh, openly transparent as we would expect uh, on this side of the pond. Um, but yeah, as far as I know, like the attack was only incidentally uh, close to to the track, but it wasn't directed, of course, at the track itself, and it wasn't like an attempt to disrupt uh, the sporting composition in itself. So yeah, I wouldn't necessarily fear for my safety on on that regard. I would fear for my safety for other reasons, maybe, but not you know from a missile threat over over a paddock. Uh, but yeah, it definitely comes into play, especially like when the internal, like local stability of a country is uh, so heavily compromised. Uh, the point is, I don't want to go into the the specific the specifics of it, but it's I think very telling that um, you know Saudi Arabia has been um, part of controversies in the past couple of days, especially like looking at the um, Khashoggi case. I don't know if you if you followed like the the journalist the dissident journalist. Yeah, so so just to um, just for anyone who isn't aware, uh, Jamal Khashoggi was a columnist for the Washington Post and several other newspapers and uh, a Saudi national. Um, I believe um, uh, had residency in the United the United States at the time, and um, he was uh, murdered um, in what is believed now to be a state-sponsored killing um, in the Saudi consulate in Turkey. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we cannot really know for sure because uh, the investigation has been carried out by the CIA. So we cannot say like it's a completely like independent and third party carrying out an investigation. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does. It doesn't sound that weird, honestly, knowing the the, the political position of uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, I think we've also seen like with Formula One. Uh, joining uh, Formula E in racing in the country uh, in 2021, that the public opinion is uh, is very as very intense and polarizing uh, positions on the topic. I'm not sure. Like I'm certain that um, Saudi Arabia is carrying out some sort of you know um, initiative to to gain some sort of recognition on the on the international scene by also having these type of events like sporting competitions, trying to be a bit more lenient also on some kind of their you know internal protocols and laws. Like for example, I remember Italy uh, playing a very important uh, football match in Jeddah, where the Formula One race is supposed to, to take place in 2021. The, the Super Copper, yes? Yes, exactly. And for that occasion, Saudi Arabia um, was a bit, you know, less strict on uh, having women attending attending the match. And as far as I know, they're also like less strict on having women in Formula E, for example, like uh, joining the, the crowd as fans. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we can say that there is an effort 
Um, I don't know how much of this effort is, you know, genuine and spontaneous, but at some point uh, we also like just have to appreciate that the effort is there. Although I think that the road is very, very, very long and it's going to be very controversial. Yeah, of course. And um, if if we start going down the route of, um, uh, if you like, dangling the carrot of motorsport for countries that have achieved a certain um, um, uh, quote unquote acceptable level of human rights, then um, th- there is the perhaps justifiable argument that that Pandora's box was opened years ago because I mean F1's already in Bahrain um you know you you could there are what aboutist arguments you could make about the United States as well um and there are certainly arguments you could make about uh, Russia's human rights records and uh, and yet all of those countries are involved um in in motorsport already so um I I guess the the question really is um um would we have been i mean obviously it's it's hypothetical now but uh, it, it's moot now but would we have been correct to have not gone to saudi arabia as um, as motorsport as the motorsport community given that we've already gone to these other countries and um well people who have chosen to go there in the past such as bernie eccleston have shown scant regard for countries records on these kinds of issues Well, you know, as much as I believe that um, sport should be like a means to an end in terms of, you know, fostering uh, equality and inclusivity and diversity, I also understand uh, because it's always been my personal approach to to motorsports, both as a fan and somebody working in the business that it is actually a business, like it is a multi-million dollar uh, industry. So yeah, I cannot expect them to have like a perfect track record also because like if you look at it as a business, I don't think that any business in the world has a perfect track record when so many, so much money is involved. And yeah, I agree with you that the argument can be can be made for Russia and even China to an extent, for example. And China has been a staple in most motorsport calendars for quite a while now. Um, the thing is that I think that um, the public opinion, and I'm not defending you know, uh, Saudi Arabia in this, but I'm just saying that the public opinion is particularly like uh, biased um, against Saudi Arabia if compared to other countries that ha- had already joined the, the sporting scene and the motorsport scene uh, in the past. So I think that we should really like take a step back and truly analyze and see how much worse Saudi Arabia is compared to other countries. And then we can take a stance, of course. Like, I think that us as individuals, both as people working in the industry and both as fans, we can definitely decide, and and it is within our rights to decide whether we're going to cover an event, whether we're going to attend, whether we're going to watch something. And this is, you know, part of a way of, you know, making a statement even uh, you know on the side of business uh but yeah there's only some extent to which i would condemn uh sporting championships to to come to these countries yeah um just to uh just to close this topic i i i really like the way that uh, the 
Biden administration has uh, begun dealing with uh, the issue of um, um, what people view as double standards for countries such as Saudi Arabia and Israel. So uh, in the case of Saudi Arabia, they um, the Biden administration has uh, decided to set some much tougher boundaries in terms of um, how and in what way it uh, deals with Saudi Arabia. So, um, for example, rather than going through Mohammed bin Salman, they're going through the country's, uh, the mon- country's monarch at the moment, the king of Saudi Arabia. And um, uh, rather than um, effectively allowing the country carte blanche and uh, trying to cut deals on a case-by-case basis, as the Trump administration effectively was, um, they're, they're setting very clear goals and very clear uh, um, things that they want the country to achieve before it can, um, before there can be a cooling in relations. And I kind of would like to see motorsport, when it plans its calendars, do that in the future. Um, I I know that uh, we're asking a lot of the FIA in this respect, uh, but um, I personally would like to see uh, them redraw the international motorsport calendar and um, ask, you know, have have a simple five question test. Uh, Does X country do this? Does Y country do this? Um, um, can, Can we... Can we motivate them to do this uh, in order for them to get the get the event? Um, I think I think previously we've been uh, operating in very much a buyer's market in that motorsport has needed the money and very few countries have the kind of money needed to build and build a new circuit and stage a motorsport event. I think I'd like to see motorsports. Um, um, operating as if it's more of a level playing field in terms of the market it's operating in. Uh, I don't know if that is at all realistic or if I'm living in cloud cuckoo land there. I, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, to be honest, I, I agree um, with your reasoning when you say that, uh, you know, uh, we should definitely ask ourselves questions before entertaining these kind of relations with, you know, um, let's say controversial um, administrations. Uh, but also, yeah, I do agree that sports in this case can be an, uh, a, a catalyst to actually bring about change in, in that country. Like, I mean, it's a business for them as well, if you think about it. Of course, they have the money. Uh, but the point is that the, the playing field shouldn't be on money alone. Like, they have the money. And I don't know, the FIA has the reputation, has the international recognition. So there is an exchange to be made there. And there is a common point and a common goal. So if, you know, um, Saudi Arabia decides to build uh, a new circuit, which is an incredibly expensive endeavor, uh, but then the FIA uh, manages to sneak into, you know, contractual negotiations. The fact that, I don't know, women should be free to attend the event without any sort of, you know, limitation in terms of being accompanied or, or you know, the, the rules that we know um, Saudi Arabia has in place for, you know, female participation uh, to public life. And I think, honestly, we, we, we kind of got at what what we could do best uh, because the point is we don't have to forget that as much as we might not like the administration of a country it's not like we should punish an entire population for this so yeah. 
that that's pretty much the point i mean if a woman in saudi arabia can attend a motorsport event and possibly like her first sporting event in her entire life because the fia managed to do that then i can only be happy for it yeah and uh, i think it's worth stressing as well um just just in just in case this wasn't clear enough um terrorist attacks of any kind especially attacks on civilians are completely unacceptable in any case uh whether it's on a sporting event or any kind of event and um obviously um you know credit to the saudi authorities for uh preventing um, that potential attack from happening so yeah, um, but uh, it, it's an interesting question, and thank you for helping me debate it anyway. The, the races were actually pretty exciting. The second race was marred, obviously, by a couple of very serious accidents, but uh, let's deal with the first race first. So Nick DeVries was fastest in every single time session, and also um, he led every lap of the race. Um, it, it's It was really a statement of intent from him not to be the Mercedes number two to Stoffel Van Dorn, not to be his wingman this year, and um, he pretty much stamped that statement, didn't he? Um, how did you feel about Nick de Vries's performance? Uh, has he gone away and done anything different over the winter? Has he locked himself in the simulator, or is this just a natural evolution from how he was doing last year? And No, actually, um, if I have to be honest, I've never considered... Uh, Mercedes as having like a clear one-two uh, definition on who the star driver should be because um, honestly, of course, Sofa has experience has had experience in Formula One with McLaren, something that uh, Nick never had, never had the chance to to actually entertain. Uh, but I do think that in terms of experience, Sofl is definitely more experienced in the category because um, he had the, the HWA season to, to start with. Uh, but they, I do feel like they're on a level playing field when it comes to, to racecraft. Like, I think it's a very balanced couple. And I think it's one of those couples where you really can see that the pairing is made in such a way that nobody really prevails on the other so yeah i don't think that uh, honestly i can't know for sure but i don't think that nick has done anything differently he just has like massive experience in single seaters in general uh, especially you know coming a bit fresher from formula two than uh, than stoffel stoffel was uh, in the junior category when it still was gp2 and uh, things have changed and I do believe that as much as the handling, of course, is completely different by this point, we all know how um, electric cars cannot really compare to other single seaters. But I do think that uh, Nick's uh, more, more recent experience in Formula 2 has helped him, uh, you know, develop um, a faster uh, maybe way to approach Formula E. So yeah, I do think it's just, you know, the, the natural uh, path for him to, to just, you know, prove himself as a serious contender, just as, as much as Sofl is. Absolutely. And uh, well, he, he genuinely dominated uh, the opening part of the weekend. But uh, I think the, the interesting thing was seeing him um, in clearly, well, 
at least on Friday, the best car, um, able to run in clean air out in front. Um, it, he, he has... Um, he, he gained a reputation for being a guy with sharp elbows last season, mostly because he was having to wrestle through the midfield. Uh, and uh, it was just interesting to see how he dealt with clean air, how he kept focus without having to battle with other cars. And uh, I thought he was stunning. He didn't he, he didn't clip a wall. He didn't put a wheel wrong uh, all day, I thought. Actually, um, this may come uh, as a surprise to, you know, formal reviewers, but um, as much as I've seen of Nick, maybe I don't know how many people know about this, but me doing mostly like sports car and endurance, then I've met Nick in other circumstances because um, last year he actually had um, a lot of WEC experience, WEC practice with uh, both Racing Team Netherlands and um, G-Drive in the European Le Mans series, which are LMP2 cars. Um, and of course, like you cannot even possibly compare LMP2 cars to, to Formula E cars in, in any possible way. But um, in that instances, Nick had quite a lot of you know, uh, leading time, let's say, uh, because Racing Team Netherlands is a very competitive, uh, com competitive team in uh, in WEC, and uh, G Drive was pretty much, with the exception of United Auto Sports, one of the most competitive teams in the European Le Mans series. So I've noticed that the way he handles being in the lead. Um, is always very consistent and very focused in the past season as well. And, you know, I've really enjoyed seeing that being brought over into such a different, you know, racing format. Yeah, and it's it's such a different skill for a racing driver. Um, I've, I mean, I I know this only from video games, but I'm sure, uh, I'm I'm sure you can relate from your experience with drivers. Um, it, it seems like such a different skill for a racing driver to uh, have to um, to have to lead the field because you've you've got no markers, you've got you've got no one around you as a kind of accountability tool to keep you focused. You, you've only got your own concentration. Whereas if you're battling, then it's much easier because you've got the car in front to focus on, haven't? you yes absolutely and i also think that um in terms of building this kind of you know mental strength that is needed to to lead efficiently i think that endurance racing is truly like the best possible you know practicing field for racing drivers for this because of course the stints are much longer like nick of course has never driven like four consecutive hours because that's not how endurance racing works but having, I don't know, a full stint by yourself, um, if your car is in the lead, then it means you have one hour of constant leading time uh, to, to, to carry about. So, yeah, I really think that, I don't know, I guess we could say that probably endurance racing helped him a bit in this regard. Also because, like, it, it can't be said, the same can't be said for, you know, guys still involved in endurance racing but coming from GT. Uh, but coming from uh, prototype cars, of course, again, uh, I cannot stress this enough, a completely different handling, but they do have the, the kind of grip and downforce that is, you know, way more similar to single seaters that, than uh, GT cars have. So, yeah, I do think that especially in terms of mental strength, being in a leading car in endurance races really builds that up for you. It's really interesting you say that, actually, because uh, for for many years uh, in F1, it was considered that 
uh, natural endurance drivers, quote unquote, weren't necessarily natural F1 drivers. And I wonder if um, with Formula E being so different to F1 and with there being so many systems to constantly think about and check and regen pedals to push and so on. And, you know, you're thinking about your battery and you're thinking about preservation of the of the car's systems while you're also fighting um, uh, wheel to wheel with other cars. Um would you say that it's a much more endurance centric skill than um than maybe was the case with uh 90s F1 when you very rarely got endurance drivers moving across you you get a you get a lot of them doing well in formula E um Andre Lotter obviously sticks out but uh, well there are there are many others as well yeah absolutely i think that uh the the key word here being you know uh, strategy and preservation as you were saying like the way that formulary drivers have to manage uh the car's energy throughout you know a relatively short race because it's 45 minutes so definitely not on par with endurance uh but the thing is that pretty much the same happens in endurance in terms of taking care of the car you cannot allow yourself to just always push to the limit because this is simply not how endurance racing works. So that's where I think the main difference between, you know, transitioning from endurance to Formula One is a lot more complicated than transitioning to in, from endurance to Formula E. Uh, I think that the way, the way they have to, you know, constantly uh, put together a strategy, even as drivers, like you would expect the pit wall to take care of that and of course they do uh but strat- uh, but drivers have a m- much agency over over they, their strategy in formula e and endurance so yeah i think that is definitely an aspect that can help and honestly like the the current um formula e field has seen other drivers uh, stepping up to, or, you know, stepping aside to endurance racing. Of course, we have uh, Jean-Éric Byrne. Uh, he had like a season, a couple of outings with G-Drive uh, last year. And um, he also went to Le Mans. Same goes for a teammate, Antonio Felix da Costa. And they both performed really well, despite not having that much experience in endurance racing, racing by itself. So, yeah, I do think that um, a certain amount of skill and a certain type of skill is uh, easily transferable between these two massively different classes of racing. Yeah, and uh, you used the word massive and it just brought to my mind the fact that DaCosta has actually driven Big MH, my favourite meme sports car as well, <laughs> So, um, that, which is always a good thing. Um, yeah. And uh, as has Alexander Sims, of course. Um, so... Uh, yes, that that's that's excellent, and um, I also want to uh, um, give praise to uh, the people in Brixworth who make the Mercedes-Benz performance powertrains. Because, um, and I know it's worth mentioning that DS, uh, who supply to Cheetah, have not yet uh, delivered the new powertrain, which uh, is re- going to be ready for uh, Rome in April, the second round of Formula E. So there may be a rival for the Mercedes powertrain then but at the moment it's clearly the best i would say uh you can say whether you agree or not um but um it looked as though mercedes brought exactly the level of attention to detail and exactly the level of performance planning that they was to a formula one powertrain there would you say yeah 
absolutely it's funny you should mention that because um i'm lucky enough to have uh some friends in brick in bricksworth that you know care enough about me to to give me some updates from time to time of course it's strictly confidential stuff so that they cannot Aww. say much as well uh and i cannot say much of course i don't want to to break their trust uh but yeah <laughs> i mean the timing uh was actually very convenient because uh just yesterday i was uh chatting with a couple of them uh, of course, they're very happy about the, the HPP division at the moment, the high performance powertrain division. And the thing is with uh, the, the Formula E calendar, you know, the delaying the season a little bit um, if compared to, I don't know, 2019 and 2020. Um, yeah, it's actually more convenient for them because at the moment uh, I'm told that they're working like together. Uh, with Formula One in developing the engine. So the amount of know-how that is being transferred is literally real time, which is something that did not happen like in past Formula E seasons, because of course the Formula E um, championship used to start in uh, November or December. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a it's a very interesting approach, and definitely it's funny that you should mention that it looks like the attention to detail has been on par with Formula One, because as far as I know, uh, that's pretty much what happened. <laughs> of course, there's no reason why that wouldn't be, given that uh, um, g- given that uh, given that all of Mercedes motorsport activities are all run by Toto Wolff and his team anyway. So uh, it, it makes sense that the philosophy is the same, I guess. Yes, definitely. Um, but um, I, I mean, obviously, you've said that you can't say anything that they've told you, and I'm not going to ask you about that. But um, what I am interested in is um, how many, roughly, of the people experienced on the Formula One power unit uh, have been transferred across to Formula E. Um, is there anyone working on both, and um, or um, are they mostly new recruits for the Formula E side? One pretty interesting detail, which at this point uh, dates back to 2020, but is still valid in uh, 2021. Um, you'll have to forgive me for this, but I generally don't remember the name of the of the person I'm talking about. But as far as I know, a very important like directive figure in uh, the Formula One powertrain development uh, department has been actually moved past year, um, last year in uh, into Formula E. And as much as it was like considered a, um, a downgrade, we could say, I don't think that the same is really valid this year, but at the time it was considered some sort of a downgrade. Um, we're talking about a person with like 25 years experience uh, working mm-hmm. on the powertrain, like of course, engine <laughs> uh, department in uh, with Mercedes and with other Formula One teams. So yeah, there has been a transfer going from Formula One to Formula E. There are some people working uh, both, like many people working both, including uh, the guys who are kind enough to to give me this information. Um, so yeah, definitely, like the cooperation is really, really, really intense. Yeah, um, and um, of course that has helped uh, Venturi massively as well. They've been Mercedes customers now for um, uh, one year, but uh, this is their second year as as a customer team. Um, 
And um, obviously the way Formula E works, uh, if you're a customer team, then you're given an identical powertrain to the works team. So that's what's happened. And uh, Venturi really used it to their advantage, at least in the case of Edo Mortara on Friday. Um, he was um, he was decreasing margins behind De Vries uh, as the sessions went on um, to the point where I think he was a, he was a few thousandths of a second behind him in regular qualifying. Obviously, slipped back a bit in Super Pole for which he apologised. But uh, um, I think the the highlight uh, that is going to stick out because it's easily repeatable on YouTube is going to be uh, that fantastic uh, Mika Hakkinen Spa style pass that he did on two different cars um, going into turn one, I think, with uh, about um, 15 minutes to go in the first race. Um, what did you make of that pass? Was it was it entirely split-second uh, calculated risk, or was it something that maybe he'd been lining up for a few laps, do you imagine? Uh, yeah, to be honest, that was like uh, a pass for the books, like an, an amazing overtake from Eduardo. And I think that in these circumstances, um, his experience as a, a Macau specialist uh, with GT cars on such a tight track, such a you know type of track at least, uh, really comes comes in handy. Um, but I do think it was. I don't know, very spectacular on TV, but if you really think about it, it's just, you know, calibrating uh, the moment in which you start regenerating, like on that turn specifically, um, you know, the, the time in which you start regenerating is very important. So I think that he definitely had that lined up for a couple of laps, even just to, to understand uh, where where was the breaking point for was it uh, Evans and Verline in front of them oh, in front of him I think so, uh, uh, it so was, yeah. yes. yeah definitely like looks spectacular on TV uh, I wouldn't say it's an impromptu uh, <laughs> overtake but yeah amazing racecraft on display by Eduardo. Yeah, at first viewing, I have to admit, I, I thought I, I thought it was a case of him using a mistake to his advantage because it, it it looked like one of those classic overspeed dive bomb jobs uh, that we that we saw in F one video games. But but the, but then when I when I watched it back and watched it back, I could see he got the braking margin exactly right to take yes. the right line into the corner. So there was no mistake there whatsoever. Precisely. Um, and uh, you, you could argue it was even better than Mika Hakkinen's move uh, at Puan in 2000 because uh, with that he was passing Ricardo Zonta, a backmarker, as well as Michael Schumacher. With, with this one, Mortara was passing uh, two cars on the lead lap. So um, fantastic manoeuvre and uh, he, he literally left centimetres uh, between himself and Evans and Verline, um, it, n neither of whom are known for giving inches really, are they? Yeah, absolutely. As I was saying before, I really do think that in, in these scenarios, uh, being good at tracks like Macau really shows, you know, the experience you bring along with you from, you know, past uh, racing endeavours. Yeah, um, and uh, he's he's still the record holder for race wins in different cars in Macau as well. So, yes. Um, and and uh, by the way, that's a terrifying circuit. I, I'd I'd love I'd love to watch a race there, but not to take part in a race there. Uh, I don't know if you feel the same way. <laughs> no, absolutely. Actually, um, I wouldn't even feel that that comfortable watching a race. I have to say that I am a terrible motorsport journalist, but because I have a very you know soft heart. So I always struggle a lot when I see 
accidents and you know any unsafe circumstance i am i honestly don't know why i'm doing this for a living considering mm. uh, this aspect of uh, how i approach motorsport so yeah macau is beautifully terrifying yeah uh, and i i think actually um most motorsport journalists feel the same way at least about one driver um I uh, my my soft heart kicked into play with Mortara the following day in his accident, which we'll come on to. Um, and uh, well, if, if um, obviously you've you've read back through um, the uh, the um, older journalists, and uh, Nigel Roebuck uh, obviously felt the same way about Gilles Villeneuve. So I, I I think I think we all have our uh, our soft spots. And um, well, th- even even though you're taught to be neutral, uh, it's always going to come into play at some point for all of us. I think, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I wouldn't even think that this is, you know, showing unprofessionalism or whatever. Of course, you have to maintain, you know, neutrality in the way you, you cover um, the races. But I do think it's perfectly natural and even, you know, acceptable and it should be cele- I wouldn't say celebrated necessarily, but there shouldn't be that much of a stigma around having a favorite as a motorsport journalist because I think that it's impossible not to have a favorite. I mean, it's sports. We we work in sports because we enjoy <laughs> watching sports. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's only natural. I have no problem, you know, like having favorites and being open about this. I wouldn't say that Eduardo is necessarily one of my favorites, but I mean, he's also like part Italian. So a bit of, you know, patriotism kicks in as well. Yeah, um, very very briefly, there, there was a video by Johnny Harris on this topic, uh, an American journalist who used to work for Vox, and he explained how when he worked for Vox, there were people asking him, is it really journalism, though, because you're part of the story, you know, you're interacting with people, and uh, he had to explain that uh, he, he wasn't looking at journalism from the point of view of 1930s rules, he was looking at it from the point of view of uh, of, of uh, rules now, as he saw them. So I, I think I think the rule book is being being, being rewritten all the time so uh, we can afford to sometimes write in write in a new way in a different way uh, for a new audience that's my opinion anyway definitely i agree hmm all right. Um, so um, obviously moving on to uh, um, Saturday in a moment, but uh, th- there was a qualifying issue in Group 4. Uh, Sergio Sete Camera in the Dragon Penske uh, went off at the final corner and so didn't record his flying lap. Um, as a result, though, there was a spontaneous seemingly decision by race direction to uh, bring out the double yellows, meaning that... Um, all of the cars going through the final corner were mandated to slow down and um, because some of them didn't and recorded their flying laps they then lost those times. Um, You feel that this was unfair maybe talk us through why and uh, what you would have done differently if you were um, if you were involved in that. Uh, Yeah, I think that especially when it comes to qualifying um, for those of our, you know, people (laughs) tuning in for this that have been following Formula E for for a while, they know that qualifying regulations have always been like a topic of controversy, especially uh, between drivers, because, of course, you know, street racing and the peculiarities of Formula E require very peculiar qualifying rules. 
Um, but I mean, they, they need to be adapted as time progresses and as we, you know, see situations which we wouldn't necessarily have imagined before happen. Um, so yeah, the point is I've heard, um, especially like in the press conference, uh, Tom Blomqvist, which was one of the drivers affected by this decision, um, was actually very vocal about the rules not being entirely fair in this regard. Uh, because the problem is uh, the the time constraints are a serious issue in Formula E qualifying. And I understand that it's very difficult to make it work because, of course, you cannot have all cars on track on such tight and twisty street circuits. Um, but yeah, I mean, the times are so, so, you know, narrow that even like a double yellow seriously compromises your chances of posting a quali uh, qualifying lap. Like we can even say, I don't know, uh, the pit walls having, uh, you know, making the wrong calculations and actually missing out on having a flying lap. I mean, the same thing happened in the second qualifying session on Saturday for, for group one, like the pit wall completely screwed up uh, calculations for at least three cars in group one. Uh, so you can imagine how difficult it is. And I think it's very unfair that current regulations uh, only provide, you know, a second attempt uh, for, you know, red flag uh, periods. But yeah, um, I think it's very unfair only providing this for red flag uh, timings when the time constraints are so severe, uh, when a double yellow pretty much has the same effect on your flying lap. Okay. Um, I I, w I would agree with you, but uh, I would say that uh, probably if we had Scott Elkins and the race team in the room with us, they'd probably say the time constraints are there because of the schedule that they have to run by. Um, but uh, I, I would say I would say absolutely in an ideal world. I mean, if you look at other sports. Um, if if someone's injured in football, then uh, the game doesn't get shortened; uh, it gets extended. So uh, um, th there sh there should be a mechanism for something where um, you know cars lose lose a lap uh, that they should be able to do an extra lap without uh, too much of an issue to the rest of the schedule. Um, so. Uh, maybe that's something that they will bring in in the future. I certainly hope so. Um, and it, it's it's a really good point that you make there. Um, do, do you think that um, there's any way in which that might be inop inoperable because of the schedule? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I understand the reasoning behind, um, you know, having such uh, tight schedules in Formula E. In general, the point is, of course, um, the, the championship races on, uh, on street circuits. So most of the time, uh, you know, having the entire paddock moving for a couple of days is actively impairing, uh, you know, the, the, the public transportation and, you know, the day-to-day -day activities of people living in the area for at least a couple of weeks. So I, I do understand the reasoning behind this, again, where it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a dreamer's uh, perspective probably to have things done in a different way, but as long as you know uh, Formula E follows on the street racing path, I think that we have some compromises to make, and that's pretty much it. Uh, I've noticed this this like firsthand in Rome because, of course, I covered the race in the past, but also like I've lived in Rome for five years. 
So I know how <laughs> difficult it is to, to actually maintain uh, decent um, you know, public roads in Rome and shutting down mm. the city for two weeks. That, that neighborhood is very taxing on everybody. Yeah. Um, but by the way, um, I, I have no idea uh, what the spectator situation is going to be at the Rome E-Pri, but uh, do you think you'll be covering that from the scene? Um, honestly, it really depends on yeah how things pan out um, with COVID regulations and whatever. I have to say, I really, you know, um, I miss covering Formula E. I don't cover Formula E as much anymore because, you know, uh, keeping up with freelance journalism work and also like mm. uh, my commitments to Team Lazarus in the GT Open and also like my th final year thesis for my master's in law, it's pretty complicated. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do really miss Formula E a lot. So I'll see how things pan out for Rome and hopefully I can come by. Fantastic. Um, the second day was uh, when things took a bit of a turn for the darker, unfortunately. It began in uh, third practice with an incident that um, I I will admit, and I admit on Twitter that I, that I actually missed because... It didn't seem remarkable or noteworthy, and the commentators didn't leap out of their box about it. But um, what happened was, um, at the series of practice starts that the drivers all do at the end of the session, both to uh, uh, test race control and also to uh, to test their own start systems, uh, Eduardo Mortara in the Venturi uh, had um, a what looked like a perfectly fine practice start. The trouble was that uh, he wasn't able to decelerate uh, for the first corner afterwards. And indeed, he went straight on into the escape road. Um, now, um, uh, Mercedes uh, decided to um, decided that this was potentially a powertrain issue. And um, so they and the FIA checked the powertrain, meaning that the FIA uh, refused permission for any of the Mercedes-powered cars to take part in qualifying. Um, while all this was happening, Mortara was being checked over in hospital. Uh, thankfully, he was fine and he was back at the track, ready to qualify. By the way, I have no idea how a racing driver even someone, you know, hard-headed and trusting in their engineers and equipment can just go back to a track and try to qualify in something that they they feared for their life in a couple of hours previously. It's, it, it, I, I understand it's a mentality all racing drivers have to have, but it's not a mentality I personally, as, as an individual, have ever had. So um, how, how do racing drivers have that mentality? It, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I feel it's it's pretty much the same thing as as weird as it may sound uh, with people uh, doing horseback riding. Like the the principle behind it being uh, that you either step in immediately after having a big accident, or the trauma is going to like sediment into you uh, and make it way more difficult uh, later on. It's just. I don't know. I feel it's like removing a band-aid. You have to do it immediately. You cannot just, you know, uh, play around it. So, yeah, honestly, mm. it's not a mentality I have as well. Usually when, when I get some sort of, like, trauma, I need my time to, to really elaborate that. Uh, and probably that's why I'm not a racing driver <laughs> eventually. Uh, but, yeah, no, I mean, I, I understand uh, the principle behind it, but it definitely takes a special kind of strength. 
and you know yeah. talking with drivers about this uh, in general uh, in the past it's probably because they were literally they literally grew up like this most professional racing drivers start at a very young age so it's something that is being pretty much imprinted into into their way of living life so yeah i i can understand their point of view it's just not mine <laughs> Yeah, and um, Mortara is perhaps unique among the Formula E grid in being um, being willing to speak about his vulnerabilities in that sense. Um, he did an interview with me um, a couple of years ago now uh, where he talked about his wife and kids and how he thinks about them when he plans which races to go to. Uh, this was in reference to whether he was willing to go back to Macau at that time, uh, which he did. Um, but uh, he, he mentioned something similar after his overtake the previous day. He uh, um, On Friday, he said, uh, uh, well, I'm 34, I've got a wife kids I think about that every time I make a move like that and um, when he had the crash and came back of qualifying he said I thought this was the end so um, I I think the fact that he's willing to express those things uh, makes him obviously a more open and um, compelling person to speak to and to listen to but um, it also made me, I think, feel more things for him uh, and uh, feel things more um, um, in a more severe way for him when he was actually in hospital. And I, I just really wished and hoped that he would be OK, which thankfully he was. Um, but that powertrain issue. Now, I've I've got the quote here from Mercedes. He says scrolling. Um, so. Um, uh, so the. Mercedes said in their statement, um, this is after it was checked and passed by the FIA, um, our analysis since then has enabled us to understand what occurred and put in place suitable countermeasures. The braking system on the Formula E cars is designed so that if the front brakes fail, the, the rear brake system is activated as a fail safe. In this instance, an incorrect software parameter that meant the rear brake system did not activate as intended um, and the failsafe did not kick in. Uh, we've now corrected the problem and demonstrated to the FIA's satisfaction that the matter has been resolved. Um, so, obviously, we believe Mercedes, we believe the FIA, and uh, we're glad that that's been sorted, but... Um, uh, Brake-by-wire is an incredibly complex thing, at least for me to understand. Um what's your experience with this software and how could a problem like this have come about uh, in in your opinion as a journalist? Well, to be honest, I have to say that for me as well, like break-by-wire break remains a mystery in most of its aspects because, of course, I do not have like an engineering background. I, I, I'm better suited with, you know, rules and regulations as a law grad. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's a pretty innovative system and it does require a lot of maintenance in terms of software. So I do think that these kind of things can, can happen and probably happen more frequently than we imagine. But the thing is, um, as far as I know, it's very rare uh, that the fail-safe mechanisms, mechanism actually fails to, to step in. Uh, so I think that 
was probably the main issue. And I think that was the reasoning for the FIA to to stop the car uh, before qualifying, which is something that is pretty peculiar. I'm not sure it, it ever happened in Formula E before. Like that an issue, a software issue was deemed so severe that four cars were actually prevented from joining uh, qualifying. You, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this. Uh, so yeah, the problem is, um, you know, failures are expe- expected with brake by wire being such a delicate and complex um, mechanism. But yeah, the fact that the fail safe didn't kick in, I think, was the main reasoning for worrying. Um, as far as I know, um, Mercedes had had software issues. I honestly do not the na- do not know the nature of it because it was you know deemed classified information but as that software issues into friday as well and um you know also like in the press conference of course they didn't go into detail about this but um i distinctly remember them saying something along the lines of nick was amazing but we were lucky winning this race because he was having issues as well i don't know how much of it was televised but he was having issues as well uh in the first race so mm. yeah i think the the underlying software issue has been um had been going um about for longer than than we knew uh but yeah the the let's say that the the la- the final straw was actually the fail safe not kicking in but yeah as i told you before i honestly am not that um such of a such an expert on the technicalities mm. of it but yeah I figured that was like the main worry for the FIA from the FIA's perspective. Yeah. Um, What was uh, bizarre to me watching the race was um, quite how much difficulty the Mercedes runners, when they were allowed back in to race from the back, had in making up ground on the rest of the field. Um, uh, Speaking to friends of mine on the Motorsport 101 Discord chat um, uh, later that evening, um, uh, my opinion changed somewhat because the consensus there was that it was just that it was such a mixed up grid that it was effectively like a reverse grid. You had people like Mitch Evans and people like the Audis at the back and... Um, with people like that there, uh, it's it's always going to be difficult to pass because um, the performance level is much for muchness. Whereas if they were passing the Dragons and Neos, of course they'd look better in that situation. So uh, w- would you go along with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yes, I, I would agree that it looked a lot like what a, a mixed grid or a reverse grid uh, would look like in Formula E at least. So, yeah, I think this has been proven to be true, like in motorsport in general, in lots of instances, like you have the tougher dogs and you have, of course, the, the, the strongest cars. And if you have them all in the back, they're all going to bunch up and basically impede themselves uh, and impede each other. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that they had that many issues, like compared to the situation they, they were going through. It was it was more about you know really battling it out. What you would see like in front, they were actually having in the back. So yeah, it's somewhat to be expected. I agree. Yeah, and uh, we haven't got time to talk about him a lot uh, today. But uh, quick shout out for uh, Rene Rast, who uh, put put in a great performance on the first day and uh, looked set to do so before the team's qualifying mishap uh, on the second day which left him without a flying lap so um, he 
quite easily outperformed Lucas Degrassi over the weekend. Um, well, not quite easily, but he quite comprehensively outperformed Lucas Degrassi over the weekend. And um, if he continues in this way, then it looks like being an excellent season to follow up from the Berlin races he did uh, for Audi last season. Obviously, to a DTM or sports car watcher, that's going to come as no surprise. But um, he, he is a fantastic talent. I feel like uh, people such as myself and maybe other people in the media sometimes uh, miss him when it comes to their roundups because, I don't know, maybe he's not such an interesting or charismatic chap out of the cockpit. Um, and sometimes that plays a lot, a much bigger role than maybe we would like to admit. But He's a great driver and maybe we should pay more attention to him. Yes, absolutely. To be honest, uh, I have to say we were talking about soft spots before, you know, and honestly, I've always had a soft spot for Rene, um, especially like considering his um, sports car reputation and DTM reputation specifically. Uh, I do feel like DTM, the kind of DTM that he had, because this year, of course, uh, DTM is switching to GT3 cars, but uh, class one cars... Um, were really a testament to his talent because the the kind of downforce generated by class one cars is honestly pretty much unparalleled in terms of GT racing. So yeah, I, I would expect him to be um, more at ease in uh, in Formula E uh, because yeah, of course it's completely different because we're having sports car against single seaters and open wheelers. But yeah, it is it is kind of a more similar approach than what I don't know coming from GT3 uh, would would have him be. Um, but yeah, I mean, Rene definitely isn't you know the most talkative guy. Like in my experience with him, he isn't particularly you know he doesn't like to explain himself much uh, during interviews specifically. Um, but yeah, he's definitely somebody always to look out for. He's kind of the type that, you know, just does his job, does his job consistently well. Um, he doesn't care that much about, you know, everything else going around, which we can argue is probably not the best way to go in terms of public relations in 2021. Uh, but it is something that I honestly, like, as much as personality go and character go and personal affinity goes, I really, really appreciate in anyone, especially in a racing driver. So I'm okay with him not speaking that much during interviews, as long as he's consistently one of the best talents in racing at the moment, to be honest. Yeah, and th there's room for all kinds. I mean, we, we, we can't all be Lando Norris, let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um. Another driver who is uh, a um, um, a cult favourite with many people, uh, Alex Lynn, had, well, almost certainly the worst crash in Formula E history. Um, it wasn't picked up by the world feed cameras, but it was picked up by um, a, I think, a closed circuit camera um, uh, um, or a backup camera, which uh, obviously you posted on your Instagram stories today. Um terrifying uh it, it was uh the kind of crash that i thought that we'd uh moved past when uh indycar went to closed wheel racing uh but uh essentially he touched wheels with with mitch evans who moved him over to the wall um he didn't want to give in on the position uh or give in on fighting for that position and uh lynn um uh went over the top of evans's car and um and the car flipped over and went at speed into the barriers now um, I think 
there were people, including myself, who feared the worst. Uh, he went to hospital and uh, we were all relieved to hear that he was um, uh, he was talking and um, only seems to have maybe a hurt knee uh, as a consequence of that. Um, but uh, um, obviously the race ended under a red flag because of that um, and because of the fact that TV didn't cover it. There was a lot of speculation about it afterwards. Um I, I don't think we can I don't think we can fix or change any any of the aftermath to that. But um, I, Formula E is probably as safe as motorsport has ever got, and that's testament to how strong the Gen Two chassis is, isn't it? Certainly, to be honest, like the the thing I was most relieved about after uh, yesterday's accident was the fact that we can you know talk so relatively easy easily about this because yeah the consequences were ridiculous if compared to you know the the actual extent of the impact and i think again as if we need to to say more to repeat it again but the halo truly saved lives in so many instances over the past couple of years that you know the halo critics have really dissolved and I, I honestly expected that to happen because it's ridiculous to, to still be a halo critic after you know plenty of incidents that we had both in Formula One and in this case in Formula E. Um, so yeah, I guess that the first thing uh, that went through my mind as soon as I, as I heard that Alex was actually fine was, oh my God, it's so nice to, to be in such a position in motorsport to be so secure in motorsport that we can actually have this conversation right now without, you know, having uh, our hearts beating a bit too fast. So, yeah, I think that there there is a beauty in this, of course, not in having crashes and whatever, but there is a beauty in having such high performance in general in motorsport being accompanied by, you know, so, so much safety and it, it's truly a testament to the incredible work that the FIA has put up over over the years it truly we truly got it down to the one in a million chance that this can happen and I think that's honestly like there's always room for improvement but this is pretty much the best we can do we cannot have a zero percent risk rate uh, in most sports, I mean, we see in our badges, like every single, I don't know, working badge for for most sports states, motorsport is dangerous on the back of it because that's just the reality of it. But yeah, it, it adds a different level of beauty and it adds a, a different level of interest knowing that it is so secure at this point. Totally, um, and uh, I, I think I think um, I, th I think you said it the best uh, the, the best that anyone could. Um, and um, Alex Lynn obviously is someone that uh, you um, are well aware of from uh, not only his time in Formula E but also his extensive time racing for Aston Martin in uh, GT3. So, um, what did you make of him as an endurance driver, and um, how well do you think uh, he has transferred that experience to his um, subsequent single seater experience? Um, yeah, what I think is very interesting about Alex specifically in his racecraft is that, you know, there are some, I would say, some traits in his racecraft that have transferred almost identically into Formula E. He's always been a very, um, how would you say that? Like, he's always been always on the hunt, even uh, in DTE, especially like in WEC, uh, truly 
Lynn is one driver that is very, very difficult to overtake and even more difficult to, to resist an overtake coming from him. Like seriously, on, on that regard, I think his racecraft is impressive and I think he's shown pretty much the same um, in Formula E. Also like yesterday's fight with uh, Evans be before having you know the, the consequences uh, we've seen really shows what kind of a driver he is. Um, honestly, like he never stops. That That's the point and I think that's the main strength about Lin is that he just doesn't give up on an overtaking opportunity and you can't resist him for that long. And the same pretty much happened throughout his GTE career in WEC with Aston Martin. Yeah, um, actually, uh, friend, a, a friend, friend of mine, Saskia Stewart, who's been on this podcast, who is, uh, um, I think, um, um, a, one of the biggest Alex Lynn fans I know, um, sent me a video from Le Mans uh, last season. Uh, it was uh, um, Alex uh, in the Aston Martin going down Mulsanne, overtaking James Collado in the Ferrari, and, yes. and she said, and, and she said, Alex versus Collado. Can't help thinking that that was a bit like, uh, you know, uh, can't help thinking that. There, there was a bit more to that overtake than most overtakes. And uh, I mean, there's probably um, for every racing driver, the driver who you who you feel has done you out of a drive. Now, Collado obviously got the Jaguar drive that most people hoped uh, Lynn would uh, last season. But yeah, um, the, the fact that they were together in GT racing was uh, some, something of a pleasant coincidence, I guess, wasn't it? Actually, um, I can tell you for a fact that there there was some sort of a personal rivalry uh, going going around uh, at that time, um, which kind of uh, you know transferred into into WEC. And honestly, like that was amazing for for the fans and uh, for you know uh, endurance aficionados because yeah, honestly. Um, I mean, I think it's perfectly natural for racing drivers to have the, the drivers you're competing the most against, if it makes any sense. Like, of course, every single person in the paddock is a rival, but there are some people that are just a bit more intense about it than others, you know. Uh, and that's what uh, James and Alex had on track uh, and have had for a couple of years now. Uh, so it was great for us WEC fans and people working in WEC in general because the amount of, you know, racecraft they, they prove every single time um, is just insane, to be honest. And um, actually, fun fact, I don't think that this was televised um, in last <laughs> year's. Um, yeah, it was pretty much the same race you were you were referring to. Um, hmm. Basically, James uh, snatched um, Lin's, um, how do you say that in English? Oh, Lin's, Lin's mirror. Uh, basically, he snatched his mirror, of course, while racing, like it wasn't intentional. But yeah, he got way too close for comfort, for comfort <laughs> and actually snatched his mirror off. And that's, I think that's honestly beautiful because, again, of course, there is, you know, a lot of respect involved. But having such tense rivalries on track, it's honestly very entertaining. Yeah, and uh, but both both very likable guys, obviously in public. But uh, yeah, it's 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 funny how once once you put some people in a car, they just uh, change completely and be become be become cage tigers, don't they? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, yeah, obviously with um, Alex Lynn as well, it's uh, it's 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 worth saying that uh, he he has uh, for a very very long time been considered one of the big talents in single seaters. He was uh, he was a young recruit to the Williams uh, Formula One Driver Academy. Um, before that, I believe he was part of the. BRDC's Racing Steps Academy for young British drivers who maybe weren't uh, heavily sponsored. So um, he he's always been there or thereabouts. But um, it, it's I mean it's it's great to see him fit and well for, first and foremost. But uh, um, prior to that, it was great to see him being given the recognition and uh, the kind of quality drive that he deserved. And good to see that he looks like being able to get back in a car again for Rome. So let's uh, let's finish with Jake Dennis because he didn't have such a great race for BMW I Andretti, but uh, uh, I, I'm expecting better things from him as he adapts to Formula E. Um, he was a bit of a surprise signing for BMW. Uh, there there were a lot of drivers with Formula E experience, uh, probably hanging on the edge of the telephone hoping for a call from uh, from Roger Griffiths, but uh, he got it and. Um, Maybe those who haven't watched endurance racing um, and or DTM when he was with Aston Martin aren't aware of uh, how much talent he brings in, but he brings a lot of talent in. So what can you tell us about Jake Dennis? And Jake has always been an impressive racer in the in the DT in the GT you know industry, especially like of course his DTM tenure with uh, Aston Martin, and then he also uh, like switched and had a, a bit of a tenure in uh, the Blanc Ben now GT World Challenge, um, always with Aston Martin, but that time around in the GT3 configuration. Um, I have to be honest, as I was telling you before um, about Rene, I think that his DTM experience is probably like his best selling point, um, because I really don't believe that uh, GT3 experience translates as easily into Formula E. Um, and mm. I'm, I mean, we've seen GT3 drivers um, struggling in the past. It's always like a bit of a hit and miss uh, in terms of GT3 experience. Um, I have to be, to be completely honest with you, I was very surprised by this signing as well. Um, also because um, I know that behind the scenes, BMW actually struggled with the FIA to, to get him, you know, uh, the, the actual license to compete in Formula E because he doesn't have mm. the super license points for this. Um, and the regulations are are about to change in this regard, I've been told. Um, 2022 will bring about, you know, a different uh, super license allocation when it comes to Formula E. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a serious it was a serious issue with BMW, and you know it makes me think when other drivers were available, why did they actually you know go through the effort of you know pleading with the FIA to have Jake Dennis on the cockpit? So I guess that probably like they know something that we don't know. With this, of course, I'm not you know uh, undermining uh, Dennis's you know talent and racecraft. He's mm. an amazing driver, but he really didn't look like a like an obvious option you know uh so i'm really well, curious no. to to see what he can do because yeah honestly i was surprised as well and, and um I, I i just felt he was being handed um a poison chalice being up against max gunter who um uh, 
obviously is Mr. Inconsistency whenever he's in a midfield position. He seems to get involved in a scrape unnecessarily, but uh, he's still one of the fastest and uh, he seriously showed up, Dennis, in uh, practice and qualifying. Now, um, obviously it goes without saying again that uh, Diria is not a typical Formula E circuit and Formula E circuits are not typical race circuits and Formula E cars are different to anything else that Jake will have driven. So, even in spite of all of the private tests he's probably done with BMW i Andretti and the Valencia group test as well, it's going to be a difficult uh, baptism for him and hopefully he gets the time in the sim between now and Rome to really get to grips with the handling and with everything he's required to do in the car. Um, but yeah, something interesting you mentioned about the actual signing. Um, I... I felt that, um, it, you know, if we can use Collado as a verb, I, 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 I felt that BMW Collado'd this one. They they <laughs> came up with a signing uh, from another formula, a driver who is excellent in that formula, and kind of almost hoped that he would transfer that ability to Formula E. Um, I mean, w- with James Collado, um, I think we can now say part of the reason that he uh, got the drive with Jaguar was potentially uh, his agent being Nicolas Tote, the son of Jean Tote, who's one of the one of the best and best connected agents in motorsports. Um, obviously, no shade on Collado's ability. He's a brilliant driver, but... Um, is is there a similar agent connection with Dennis or is it maybe something to do with Andretti wishing to continue after BMW pull out and considering him to be a long-term prospect for their future privateer team? Um, honestly, I do not know um, which type of agent or promotion team uh, curates uh, Dennis's contracts. Uh, what I can tell you from, you know, the, the Collado affair, the Collado perspective, is that um, in their case, of course, like uh, Nicola Todd is an, an amazing agent in motorsport, really the, the one you, you should aspire to, to be signed to. Um, but it was also like, a, it was supposed to be a long-term investment for Jaguar. Unfortunately, COVID pretty much disrupted their plans um, because basically the idea was, oh, this is like, public domain common knowledge, but Collado did have uh, an option to be retained for another year. So it was a one-year contract with an option to the, for the other year. And the reasoning behind this contract was to have, you know, his first season as somewhat of, you know, acclimatization just to, to get to grips with Formula E uh, and then move into like bigger things uh, from the second season onwards. Of course, having, you know, the, the crazy uh, season we had in 2020, this was no longer viable as a long-term plan for, for Jaguar because it was like having a rookie for two consecutive years, basically. Uh, so, yeah, they decided to, to go with a much more experienced driver. And, I mean, uh, Sam and James are very, very good friends. So I'm sure there's no bad blood between them. But also, like, this uh, type of reasoning was also proven by the fact that they did sign somebody as experienced as Sam Bird. So I do believe that even for, you know, BMW and Andretti later on the line, it could be like a long-term, you know, project and perspective uh, to have just uh, Jake get to grips with Formula E this year and hopefully build on to better things in the coming seasons. 
Absolutely. Well, um, you've probably got stuff that you need to do, but thank you so much for spending the time with us uh, today, Aurora, and um, uh, best of luck with Team Lazarus and with your uh, with with your Law Masters as well. Um, how 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 is the Law Masters going? Uh, how how far through it are you now? Well, I'm basically almost done. Um, here in Italy, it's um, you know a master's degree, which uh, is five years long, so it's a, it's a long term commitment in my case. And I'm into my final semester, so hopefully I will be uh, a law graduate, or as we say in Italy, in Latin, basically, a doctor juris by the end of the year, hopefully in autumn. And then I, I have a, an idea and a couple of, you know, projects going on uh, in getting into, you know, um, becoming a sports lawyer or, you know, being an, an agent myself and following in the footsteps of Nicola Todd. But we'll see uh, what the future holds for me. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure as always. Well, th thank you. And um, hopefully we can we can do this again very soon. But uh, thank you also, everyone, for listening to the Motion E podcast. Uh, if you'd like to find us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever your favourite audio platform is, then we're there. And uh, for more of this and for more in-depth stuff, you can go to motione.org and, of course, to our Patreon site where there are now 27 backed-up articles that you can access instantly by donating uh, a pound a month or as much as you'd like. Anyway, thank you very much, everyone, and um, speak to you soon. 